Hey, it's Doug Birch, and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. So how do you form a church or a Christian ministry? Do you go up God's holy mountain and come up with your visions and your mission and your value and then come down from that mountain and share it with the world? Or do you gather together a bunch of people and collectively come up with an idea of what the church should be? How do you do this? Is it a Moses model of ministry or a Pentecostal model of ministry? Maybe it's both. On today's show, I'm going to talk about one thing, and then I'm going to completely argue against it. Stay tuned. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken by your word, your Holy Spirit's leading me, you are my only one, you're the only one worth living for, so I'm Glad to have you back, or if it's your first time here, where you been? This is The Fairly Spiritual Show. I am Doug Birch, and uh, hey, we've been looking at my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, and what I've done is uh, done a podcast for each chapter. We're up to chapter 11. Don't worry, you don't have to listen to the last 10 podcasts to figure out what's going on today. Each stands alone, Uh, but today we're going to look at chapter 11, A Community-Sized Calling. And what we're going to address is the issue of how do you form the vision or the mission or the values for any church or gathering or Christian community? And in fact, I want to get you into the heart behind why some pastors might seem a little controlling or why some might seem not so controlling. I want to share my heart when it came to uh, starting or restarting the little church that I serve, and maybe it'll give you some insight on how community-sized calling is formed. Now, uh, I uh, came out of seminary not really knowing what I was doing. That's just kind of how seminary is. And uh, I felt called to plant a church, but I didn't know what I was doing. Church planting is is a term used for starting a church, and some people call it pioneering a church or church planting. But I didn't want to take over a existing church, primarily because I didn't want to ruin an existing church. Now, I felt God had called me to church plant, but to be honest, I also felt like the ideas I had would probably not go well in a traditional church. So uh, I was looking for a church to start, and uh, I was hired in kind of a, a pseudo-church plant, a pseudo-restart of a church. Actually, it was more of a restart of a church. Uh, In my denomination, they hired me to restart a church called Evergreen Church. Now, I was told at the time there were 20 people there. The reality is there were only 12 people, and it was a a church basically in disarray. And I'm not trying to talk poorly about what came before, but there just wasn't much going on. Um, There wasn't much to build on. The people were pretty tired. The people were pretty worn out. And I felt that it was my job to try to build up a core group of people 
And uh, when you start churches or church plant, this is terminology that they use. And I may use some church planting terminology. If you're a church planter right now, you're getting all excited. He's using the language. But uh, there's a term people use as you get a core group before you start a church. And so I really didn't have a group of people to restart a church. That, that's what we decided to do, to restart this church, to rejuvenate this church. Because the people who were there were pretty worn out. And to start any church, you usually need, I don't know, at least 20 people. Usually they say maybe 50, 70, 80. I don't know. The experts all have different opinions. But you need a group of people who are energized about starting a church, reaching out to the community, gathering people together. And the people who were there, they had been there a while. They were just worn out. And so we were called to restart this church. And our denomination uh, resourced us by sending us to what they called church planting boot camp. Now, I know that's kind of a funny term, and it might give you the vision of me crawling, you know, under barbed wire with a Bible in my hand and people yelling at me, you know, drill sergeants in fatigues. And no, that's not what it was. But they called it church planting boot camp, and it was a two day exercise where basically we went through uh, clarifying certain aspects of the church. And at the time, our denomination was really into, and it wasn't just our denomination, I think uh, many churches and denominations were in, into this, they were very much into the idea of clarifying the mission, the vision, and the values of the church. So the assumption was, if you're going to start a church, you really need to understand what the mission is, what the vision is, and what the values are for the church. You also had to figure out a discipleship pathway. And so we gathered together with other church planting couples, and we, we were taught. And by the way, it's when it comes to mission and vision, it's amazing, depending on who teaches you what. There's different definitions for that. So someone would facilitate, this is what vision is, this is what mission is. And you'd write down your mission, and you'd write down your vision, and then you'd share it in a group with other church planters, and we'd encourage one another. And do that kind of clarification of what we're going to be. And at the end of the two days, I don't know if it was two or three days, I don't quite remember, but at the end, we would share our idea of what our church plant was going to be. We had spent time clarifying our mission and our vision and our values and our discipleship pathway, and we got up in front of a group of people and we said, this is the kind of church we're going to start, and it's going to have these mission, this mission and these values and this vision, and it's going to do these things. And we celebrated and encouraged one another. Well, it was really kind of a mixed bag when we went to this. And one of the main reasons for it was, uh, first, we were one of the only couples. I think we were the only couple there. And there were quite a few couples there uh, in the room. I, I think there's maybe 30 or 40 couples. I'm very bad at estimating what happened there. But I think there were 30 or 40. But we were the only couple that brought our baby with us. Uh, in our home, we don't leave our babies. I have four kids now. They're all older. Our youngest is 11. But we are strong on attachment, being with our kids. Uh, all the kids have been nursed. Um, you know, they weren't bottle fed. I'm not trying to judge you if that's what you do. But it, it was just very important for us. And this was our first child, Kaisa. She was still a baby. I don't know as a father. I'm sorry, but you know how you're supposed to count how many months old they are? You know, it kind of frustrated me when you got to the 13 month and 14 month. I thought after a year, you could just say one year old, but you know, you still have to say like 14 month, 15 month. Anyway, still, uh, Kaisa was still nursing. Kaisa still very much was with us. We didn't leave her overnight with grandma or grandpa. We kept her with us. That was our choice. 
And so this church planting boot camp did not really have room for that kind of lifestyle choice. Uh, we said, you know, we'd like to bring our baby with us. And it was kind of like, oh, really? Uh, that's not really what this is for. And what was implied was, aren't you going to leave the child with the parents? And we were like, no, this is what we do. And so they did make an arrangement for us to have our our child with us. But it was very awkward in the sense that the things weren't scheduled around the fact that we had a baby with us. If we had the baby in the room, there was just that look uh, to my wife that clear, clearly the baby doesn't belong in here. And so she, there was often times where I could only be in the meetings and Jen would take um, Kaisa out of the room and it just felt awkward. You you understand the scenario, right? It's our first child. I think with our third child, we would have been like, whatever, <laughs> we're keeping the kid in here. You know, you guys deal with it. People weren't being mean. It just felt awkward. You know that situation, right? When this, When it's not set up for you. When you realize this is not an event where kids are expected to be there. So there was that vibe there. So I would connect with Jennifer after the meetings and I'd try to talk to her about the different things we're doing because we're trying to do this together. And and primarily at that time, I felt like I was called to pastor the church. Jen didn't quite know her role in the church. Later on, Jen has become much more active as a as a pastor in our church. But at that time, she didn't quite know what her role was. But definitely, we wanted to go through this together. And so that was frustrating, right? Just trying to figure out how to do that as new parents. The second part that was frustrating was just the whole concept of mission and vision and values. I had just come out of a job in the corporate world, and it felt to me like a lot of the stuff that we were using, it might be okay, but it seemed like stuff that the corporate world had used maybe 10, 15 years ago, and although it might have some value, it just didn't seem very spiritually deep. And I know this can sound harsh. I know there were good intentions behind it. There certainly is value in clarifying values. There certainly is an importance in having a mission. And, and I know for many of you, these are crucial things to have. But there was a part of me that was looking for something a little bit more rooted in theological depth than what seemed to me kind of just, I don't know, a corporate business structure leadership strategies. And so that's what we were struggling with as we went to this. And I tried my best, and Jennifer and I tried our best to write out the mission and the vision, and we had things like, who, who are you going to focus on and what kind of people are you going to reach? And I remember having those discussions like, I don't know who we're going to focus on. We're just going to try to reach people. And it was like, no, you, you got to pick the kinds of people you're going to reach. And I remember having arguments with, well, I don't know. It'll depend on who, who God brings to our door. And like, no, you got you got to pick specific people that you're going to reach. And again, there were well intentions there, but it just, it just felt awkward. And I didn't want to go to something to argue with people, but it felt like kind of the core of who my wife and I are, or were at the time, was just kind of rubbing against the structure of what was happening there. So we were going through this process and coming up with our mission and our vision and our values. And and through the process, there was a, a break and I left the room and I went and took Kaisa and I was holding her and walking around the, the grounds with her. It was at a nice little retreat center uh, where they would do camps in the summer. And uh, I was walking around with Kaisa and I was thinking about how much my daughter had changed my life and the life of my wife and our life together. Not that she had become an inconvenience, 
but she had radically changed about everything in our life. She changed when we went to sleep. She changed how much we slept. She changed when we woke up. She changed uh, when we got to go out. You know, before you have kids, like we waited five years before we had kids and we could go to any movie when we wanted to go. We could go out to dinner and stay as long as we wanted. We didn't have to eat fast. We could just relax. We could do whatever we wanted to do. But when Kaisa came along, we changed what we did and how we did it and when we did it. And we did that because now our family was no longer just Doug and Jennifer, but it was Doug, Jennifer, and Kaisa. And I thought about how a healthy family doesn't start with, you know, this is just who we are. Here's our values. Here's our mission. Here's our vision. But part of what a family is changes as people are born into that family. I understand that there's a big mission that shouldn't change, but there's a lot of the implementation of the mission, and there's a lot of the implementation of even the values and, and a lot of deep things that radically change as the family changes. The identity of our family, the purpose of our family, the things our family did, where our family went, what our family valued even, changed as kids came into our family. I realized that Kaisa had radically changed us. Just in the few months she'd been with us, she had forever changed how my wife and I were going to live this life. We weren't going to just do what we wanted to do. What we did now was going to include her. What we valued now was going to include what she valued. Where we went was going to determine where she wanted to go, that she was influencing us as much as we were influencing her. And then I realized as we have more kids, that was going to happen with each kid, that our family would continue to change and be different based on those who came in. In fact, it would be very unhealthy if we said, nope, Kaisa, we're not changing. You just conform to us. You just do what we want to do when we want to do it, and you fit into our system. In fact, that's a sign of an unhealthy family when I just make my kids fit into my system, my rules, my laws, my regulations. It's not my family. It's God's family, and God brought Jennifer and I together to form this family, and now we have this child in our midst who's radically changing who we are and why we exist and what we're going to do. I thought about that, and I thought about what is wrong with this kind of model where you go off on your own and you figure out your mission and your vision and your values is it doesn't include the rest of the body of Christ. This is one of the problems with some of our leadership development techniques and one of the problems with our vision casting techniques is we tell people, you know, what's God's vision for your life and what's God's purpose for your life? And we say, go out and pursue that purpose and go out and pursue that vision and go out and pursue that mission. And we tell people to write down those goals and those missions and those visions and to, to implement those things and to share those things. But I believe a healthy family changes as people come into that family. And just as it's true of a family, it's true of a church as well. And I felt very strongly that God was saying to me, Doug, these mission, this mission you're writing down, this vision you're writing down, these values you're writing down, these are radically going to change when you start opening your doors to other people. When Evergreen Church becomes more than 12, but it's 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people, or it's a different 50 people, or it's a different 60 people, or it's a different 70 people, and it will change its focus, even its purpose. Yes, the ultimate purpose to glorify God, yes, but it's going to change based on the giftings in the room, based on the talents in the room, based on the season. 
based on what the Holy Spirit is not just saying to you, Doug, but what the Holy Spirit is saying to everyone. If we understand Pentecost, Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit is poured out, poured out on all flesh, and so that in that room there's a collective discernment of what is God doing in our midst, not just what is God doing through the pastor or through the pastor's wife, or what is the pastor and the pastor's wife or the pastor's husband brought to the congregation, but what is God saying to us collectively? And then vision and mission and values are formed through that collective discernment process, that community discernment process. And there was no way that I was going to be able to discern the purpose of Evergreen outside of the relationships that Evergreen was going to form. In other words, I could have some ideas, but just as my family was radically changing as Kaisa entered our home, or as our next child Anna would enter our home, or as our next child Nathan would enter our home, or as our next child Samuel would enter our home, it's the same as the church, and that these, these rules or these, these values or these things written down on paper, I had to hold them very loosely because they would change as new people came through the doors, as new families came through the doors, as I began to interact with people and begin to understand their giftings and their talents and what the Holy Spirit is saying through them. The Moses model of going up to that holy hill and coming down with God's vision for the church is dead. That in the age of Pentecost, as the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, we all go up the hill. We all go up and we discern together what God's will is for the church. And we try to, as best as we know how, discern that will, and then each using our own giftings and talents and the different things that God has given us, we try our best to form the church that God desires to be formed in our midst. Christian community can't just be me going off on my own, coming up with an individual vision of what I think things should be, and then forcing people to conform to it. I think that's one of the problems I see sometimes in larger expressions of churches. There's a strong sense. The pastor, the pastoral leadership team has a strong sense. They'll say, this is our vision. These are our missions. And then they, they force people to fit into that. And they, they basically, it's kind of law-based. They'll say, this is who we are. And if you fit into these things, you can stay here. But if you don't fit into these things, you can't stay here. Versus, hey, we're going to change because this community is not about the laws that are written down but it's about the people who've gathered. It's not just, well, we just do this kind of music. It's, well, who's on the worship team? Maybe we do this kind of music because the worship team likes this kind of music, and now there's different people on the worship team, so we do different kinds of music. Or maybe we preach differently because we have a different kind of preacher than the preacher we had before. Or maybe children's ministry is different because we have a different leader in the children's ministry. That the things we do are based on the giftings in the room and not based on just things we've written down, a law or a rule or a principle or a strategy that we've all voted on or that a few people voted on and then were brought to the rest of the congregation. Holding Kaisa, I write this in the book and page 124 of chapter 11 of the book, The Community of God, I said, holding Kaisa, I realized what was wrong with the boot camp model of visioning the church. Ultimately, the plan is the old Moses model where the prophet goes off by himself to be with God and to discover God's will for the people. Or maybe the model is where the prophet goes off with his leadership team to discover God's will for his people. Either way, in light of Pentecost, this model is incomplete. Pentecost does not allow for Moses to go off by himself and to form the vision by himself. 
Instead, all the people of God go up the mountain to be with God, to seek his face, hear his voice, and find his vision. Although we have different giftings, God ulti- excuse me, God's ultimate vision for the church is never formulated by just one person or a select group of people. God always expresses his plan through the whole church. The gathered church is the forever unfolding vision of God. And I think this is true not just of churches, but it's true in every area. That's why it's dangerous as a, as a husband just to be, well, I'm going to go off and figure out God's will for the family and come out and say, this is what we're going to do and tell my wife what we're going to do and tell the kids what we're going to do. No, God unfolds his vision through the body, through my wife, through me, through the kids. That's why collective vision is so important when we gather together as the kids. And like, what is God saying? It is so much more powerful instead of saying, here's the rules for the household, and this is what we're going to do instead to gather together to pray and say, what is God saying? What, how should we treat each other as a family? What should we do this summer as a family? What should we do as we're going on vacation? How should we treat each other? As we're going into the school year, how should we treat one another and allow each child led by the Holy Spirit Allow each person led by the Holy Spirit to share a more full vision of what the family is or is to become. It's amazing the ownership you have when everyone joins in with that mission. So, you know, in the book, I argue about this fact that the Moses model is dead. But then I come back and I say, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Let me argue against that. And, I, and, I, and there's much more detail in the book for this, and especially if you're a pastor or a leader or you're trying to understand maybe why sometimes the leaders around you hold a little tightly to the vision or the mission or the values of the church. There's a reality of why people don't let go of what might seem like control in the church. Why sometimes it seems like a certain leader or pastor is reluctant to share all the decisions with others. And that's because, whether we like it or not, founding pastors or leading pastors usually have a very unique role within the church. And I'll just say this for for our church. Uh, The church I serve, uh, Evergreen Church became my wife and I. It became our all or nothing. We chose to give everything for it. I mean, everything's a strong word. We haven't given our life for the church. But we chose to be all in. That's a poker term, right? We chose to say all in. The church isn't just something we do. It's everything. There's no plan B for us. It's not a season of our life. It's not something that we do until we're going to do something else. And what you find when you pastor a church is there are people who have lots of strong opinions. They have lots of strong theological convictions. They're very good at arguing their positions, and they can even tell you, you know, the church, the body of Christ, and everyone should have equal opinions, and everyone should have equal say, and that we shouldn't have strong, you know, leaders who control things, and they'll say a lot of good things, but the reality is they do not have the same commitment to the church, and for them, the church is a place that they go to until they go somewhere else. If you look at the histories of their life, they go to churches for about four or five or six or seven years, and then they go somewhere else. And they're there until they disagree, or they're there until they don't get their way, or they're there until just some other thing that's more important takes priority in their life. And I would say even if they're not doing anything wrong, even if that's just what they're doing, 
they're viewing the church differently than the family that has invested everything in that church. The reality is most churches are not megachurches led by megachurch pastors. And I'm not knocking megachurch pastors. I have friends of megachurches. But the majority of churches, it's something like 90% of churches are 200 people or less. The median size of churches is something like 70 people or less. A majority of pastors are bivocational, which means they can't afford, the church can't afford to pay them a full-time salary. Many pastors are investing their lives in the church with very little financial uh, return. They're not doing it for financial return, but they're barely making it. They can't afford health insurance. They can't afford basic things. Many I know many pastors who they are often uh, some of the poorest paid in their congregation. They serve people who are doing much better financially than they are doing themselves. They live in positions where they don't make much. They have very little financial security. It takes great cost upon their marriage, their kids, and their family. And uh, there's not a week or a month that goes by where they don't face a lot of hardship and conflicts and struggles. For them, the church has been something that truly has cost them much. And because of that, they hold tightly to the decisions that are made in the church. In many ways, it's their baby. And this brings me back to the image again of holding my daughter, Kaisa. You know, when Kaisa came into our life, she radically changed our family. There's a reality of it, too, that that I believe that as the father of my daughter, that she's my priority. And I'm going to take extra care to make sure that no one harms her. I'm going to take extra care to make sure that I give my best energy and my best effort, that everything goes okay in her life. Evergreen Church is, you know, not my child, but I care about that church. It's not a fad. It's not a season. It's not just a part of my life. It's been my all in. And because of that, I can't take every idea or opinion equally. I have to sometimes hold tightly to things. And I know I've done that wrong. I know there's times where people could say, well, that, well that's kind of controlling, Doug. And, and, you know, who do you think you are? Well, the reality is, I've been with people who had really strong convictions about me, and they'd say, you know, Doug, you're, I'm with you, and I'm with this church, and they'd give me prophetic words about my life and about the church, and they're no longer in my life. And I served them, and I served the vision they had, and I did the things they thought I should do, and I even implemented the things they thought I should implement in the church, but they're no longer around. But the cost of doing what they told me to do had an effect on me, on my marriage, and on my family. So, both are true. At one level, yes, definitely. This is the age where the Spirit of the Lord is poured out on all flesh, and that I don't want to just go off on my own and come with a vision and a mission and values and say, God's speaking to me, you follow me. No, collectively, we want to discern what God's will is for the church. But also... We have to be honest about this, that sometimes mission starts with one person. That first there was a couple who set up some chairs or opened their house to a Bible study, and they kept ministering even when people left. 
and they kept volunteering and doing the work. Like my wife continues to minister in the nursery, whether people come or go, or she continues to do the work of dealing with difficult things, whether her feelings are hurt or not. Showing up, whether someone cusses you out or not. Blessing people, whether they curse you or not. And we've had a very healthy congregation. But we didn't opt out when our feelings got hurt. We didn't run away when it didn't happen the way we wanted it to. We just committed. I remember when we first started our church and a very well-intentioned man said, you know what this church needs? It needs a Sunday school. Every good church has a Sunday school. And so I was like, okay, we're going to do a Sunday school. And I remember putting that together and we did our Sunday school. And he stopped going to the church maybe like four months after we started that Sunday school. And we kept doing it. And it was just a big burden on the church. And it was a big hassle. And it wasn't what we were supposed to do, but we did it because he said we were supposed to do it. And he was no longer around. And eventually I had to stop it because it was ridiculous for us to do something that someone else thought we should do. And he was no longer in the picture. Mission is like that. And it's like that for you. There's some things that God wants you to hold on to. And I'm, I'm bringing this up and it's, it's very personal. And some might say, well, why are you spending some time on this in the book? And why are you even spending some time on a podcast with this? Well, I, I want you to understand that I think mission and vision and values and starting a ministry, it's both these things. That I know God has put things on, on the hearts of people listening right now. And there are things that you have to contend for. And people have forgotten and people have given up. And you must contend as if you are the only one contending for that vision. And you can't hand it over. You have to fight for it. You have to contend for it. It's your baby. You have to contend for it. You can't give it up. You can't just say whatever. You can't just say, well, what's the group think? Let's vote on it. There are some things where you have to say, no, I know my heart's desire. I, we have to do this. This is the core of who we are. We're going to do it this way. I believe this. This is what we're about. We just have to do it this way. It's your all or nothing decision. There's some decisions you got to make like that. There's some ways that you structure your life like that, that it's just it. You just have to do that. And others won't understand, but the Lord is telling you, contend for that. Don't let it go. Fight for that. Fight for that. Don't let anyone take that over. Don't let anyone change your course. You're humble, you're gentle, you're kind, but still you must contend for that. You can't give it up. Don't change course. Don't start that new program they want you to start. Don't do it differently. You've been called to do it this way. Do what God has called you to do. There is that reality of ministry, and people will call you selfish. People will call you bold. They'll call you arrogant. They'll call you clueless. But you know that if you don't do this, you won't be doing what God has called you to do. There's an aspect of that to ministry where you just preach and teach because God has called you to preach and teach, and you do it. It reminds me of Paul preaching so much where a guy fell asleep and fell dead out the window. Remember that? He preached so much, a guy got he fell asleep and fell dead. Paul goes over brings the guy back to life, and the Bible says he kept preaching. That's someone who was confident in his calling. Others would say that's a time to stop preaching, but not Paul. Paul knew that that's what he was called to do. And some of you have callings like that where others don't understand you're supposed to do that. So that is a part of ministry where it looks like a Moses model, where you just go and you're with God and you get the vision and you speak the words and you proclaim the truth and you lead forward whether others will follow you. However, there's another part of ministry as well. 
And the fact is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And so you continually open up that vision for others to hear the voice of the Lord as well. And you open up your heart to hear the voice of the Lord and other people. And you allow the vision of God to be expanded and to grow and to thrive and to change as others come into your life. It's both. Maybe it's both. It's the body sharing vision, sharing mission, sharing what the Spirit of the Lord is saying so that we can move forward. And sometimes it's just you feeling like you're all alone, pursuing God and contending for what God has put on your heart. Wherever you are right now, whether you're contending and you feel like you're alone, and by the way, if you feel like that, you probably need to be really open when people come along to still listen to the voice of the Lord from them, to be open to allow people to come into your life and to speak into your life. On the other side, if you're in a place where you're really good at sharing vision with others and having other people speak into your life, you need to also make sure that you don't give up on the things that are very specific and unique to you, the things that others won't understand but God wants you to contend for. God has called you to this season. He has a vision and a mission and a purpose that's community-related, that's community-sized, and also it's so individualistic in this sense that it might just be about a passion he's placed on your heart, and others haven't seen it yet. But if you contend for it, eventually others will see it as well. Maybe it's both. I hope that makes sense. Hey, if you want to find out much more about this, I'd encourage you to read the book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. Uh, you can pick it up through my website, fairlyspiritual.org, or you can go to Amazon. Uh, there's a text form, not text like sitting on your phone, but you can actually uh, get uh, the printed copy. There's audiobook through Audible or a Kindle version as well. The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, that's the number one way you can support this podcast is by buying this book and sharing it with others. Make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. This theme music is by my brother Dan Bursch. You can check out his music on iTunes. I will see you next time. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to It is not possible, unattainable I will never see it through But you've spoken by your word Your Holy Spirit's leading me You are my only dreams with you.